You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Go into any bookstore and there will be shelves overflowing with books about leadership, giving the reader hope that there will be just one certain to provide the roadmap and tools necessary to become a successful leader. Leaders, Myth, and Reality is the title of the recently published book by my guest, General Stanley McChrystal. He, along with his co-authors, Jeff Eggers and Jason Mangone, have written an entertaining and substantive book that clearly demonstrates that there is not one prescription to be an effective leader and that leadership can and has throughout the centuries taken many forms. In 2010, General McChrystal, a graduate of West Point, retired from the U.S. Army as a four-star general. Since then, he has authored two New York Times bestsellers, My Share of the Task, and Team of Teams, and has become a highly sought professor at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, as well as a founding partner of the McChrystal Group, a global consulting firm with clients including Intuit, Monsanto, and Cisco, to name just a few. General, our World Affairs Council members appreciated your visit during your tour for My Share of the Task, so thank you for giving us the privilege of welcoming you back to Dallas. You're kind to have me, Jim. Tell us about how you came up with the methodology of the book and the choice of the 13 leaders profiled. Sure. I started studying leadership when I was 17 when I entered West Point formally, and of course I had informally read about it before then. I was trained in leadership, educated in leadership, practiced leadership, and I got to this point in life and realized, even after teaching leadership, that I didn't think I really understood it. And it struck me that we don't understand the essence of leadership. We circle around it, we try to make lists, we do all the things to try to be good leaders, but we keep being frustrated with that. So we decided to go back to first principles. We went back to Plutarch, the original biographer. We studied Plutarch's lives, where he profiled 48 leaders in pairs. And we looked at why we look at leaders a certain way and why we always have. And our conclusion was leadership isn't what we think it is, and it never has been. It's been affected, or you could say infected, by a certain mythology that causes us to simplify how we think about leadership. And it's more about us, how we internalize our relation to leaders than it is about the leaders themselves. But it makes leadership a very nuanced, complex endeavor. How did you select the leaders that you included? And some of the pairs made complete sense to me, and then others I was surprised by. You almost wouldn't have wanted to see the, uh, the process. We spent... You started with how many? We knew we were going to do about 12, but we started with two. Mm -hmm. We started with Albert Einstein. We knew it would include him, and we knew it would include Robert E. Lee. Einstein, because in 1923, he was the most famous man in the world and thought of as a leader, although he's a physicist. And he was a quirky kind of personality. But yet he rose to being a leader, even though he was never elected or appointed to any real leadership role. And then, of course, Robert E. Lee, because my own life story had been intertwined with the ideas and values of Robert E. Lee and his story. And I spent a lot of time in Rockbridge County, too. There you go. And you really changed sort of your feelings about Robert E. Lee, didn't you? I did. I would say I evolved them. I grew up with the idea that Robert E. Lee was the stereotypically perfect leader. I mean, he, he went through a war, lost the war, and yet came out the most revered person out of the Civil War. And probably for the next 150 years, 
the single most admired person in much of the country, not just the South. So that's where the word myth comes from. Well, that's one of them. That's exactly right. The fact that we could have a guy who betrays his country to propagate slavery and then loses in the endeavor and we consider him what we want to be as a leader. Now, many ways he was. If he was sitting here today, we'd admire so much about him and I still have a lot of things about him that I'd like to emulate, but he made some dramatic mistakes in his life that we need to understand and factor in. You know, you talked about characteristics that you'd like to emulate, and so that makes me think about how has your own method of leadership changed over the years? Because you've had many different jobs, and how have you taken steps throughout your career, depending on these circumstances, to reinvent Stan McChrystal? Sure. I think like most of us, I started trying to do what people told me to be as a leader. I read books about leaders and leadership, and then there were checklists of behaviors or things that you do, and I tried to do those. I became a very centralized, strong leader as a young officer in the Army. I had a, an infantry company of about 150 mechanized infantrymen and 14 armored vehicles, and I put them all on the same radio frequency. So if I said turn left, all 14 turn left. So top down. Yeah, and I mean, completely top down. Later in my career, what I understood that the real power in the organization is in the other leaders because you add all that together and no single leader can, can approach anything like that. So I became more and more decentralized over the years and more indirect in how I think leadership works. As I've gotten even older, I realized that leadership is this interaction with the followers and interaction with the environment. So you can't walk in and shape the environment you have to react to the environment. You have to react to the leaders you have, which means you have to lead differently in every situation. And followers can be your family, they can be your employees. One of the things that I've always wrestled with is how to instill in the people that I've worked with uh, not to be afraid of failure. And you wrote in the book, leaders most often fear responsibility for failure more than enemy fire. For some, reputation is zealously protected, and overall caution and timidity are more common than physical cowardice. How do you advise individuals not to fear failure when all too frequently our corporate culture really stymies risk-taking? I think there are two things. First, you have to explain to them the cost of not making decisions. People try to get so much information that they mitigate risk to zero, but in reality, not making a decision sometimes constitutes failing in an opportunity or a risk. So that's the first thing. And then the second is everybody looks to see what happens to people who fail. The United States has an entrepreneurial society and we have pretty easy things like bankruptcy laws to encourage people to fail and try again. But in most organizations, the, the idea or the culture around failure still puts a black mark on a person. And so people want to avoid it. And so what we find is You've got to create an environment where they understand that not only do you expect them to make decisions, you expect them to have a percentage of failure. As we point out in the book, even when Ted Williams broke the 400 batting average, it meant he failed almost 60% of the times he went to the plate. I'd love to ask you to talk about some of the leaders included in the book. Uh, Walt Disney was someone who had a public persona that was very different than the way he was behind the curtain. Wasn't such a nice guy. So why did people still want to work for him? Well, because he was creating a vision and had an energy when he was a young animator when he started Disney Studios. That was a place to be. When he decided to take on the idea of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, he brought all of his employees in after dinner one night and gave them a three-hour talk where he played out every part in the Snow White story. 
and then told them we're going to make a two-hour animated movie, and nobody had ever tried that before. The excitement of it all. Mm -hmm. Now, four years after its release, successful release, they did a big strike against him because he was a tough boss, but it still was magnetic to work for somebody who's taking you somewhere. And he really understood about a brand, didn't he? Absolutely. And that made me think about someone else who has been successful selling a brand that might be a little ambiguous, our president. Well, he has, and he has sold an idea of simplifying what we need to do in the nation, and he does it very effectively. And what we have to do is understand that followers have responsibility. We don't stand and wait for a leader to tell us what to do. We select, we elect, we support. We do all the things for leaders that give them the ability to do that. So we can't do anything but look in the mirror and say what we get is what we choose and what we accept. So we have to make those decisions. I think you and some of your colleagues have been somewhat critical of President Trump, especially when he was so outspoken about uh, Admiral McRaven. And I, w I wonder what you think about that, if you might tell our listeners. Well, I'm, I'm a huge admirer and very close <laughs> to Bill McRaven. And, and I think that when we talk about leaders, we've got to have leaders reflect the values we want. Bill McRaven reflects the values I admire. Other leaders like that. And I think that as long as we are loyal to them, celebrate them, they're not perfect, but they take us in a better direction. That's the kind of people I want to follow. You know, there's another leader that you highlighted, and I may not pronounce his name correctly, and so you probably know who I'm talking about, and that is the Chinese, uh, 15th century Chinese Admiral uh, Zheng He. Zhonghash. There we go. And he's really being brought back to life by the Chinese leadership. Tell us about Most that. Most of us never heard of him, but in the 14th century, he was reported to have been seven feet tall with a waist five feet around. Yeah. That's probably not accurate, but he led these <laughs> fleets of treasure ships and he led them through much of the world, connecting China to the world. Now, we think of China as this insular middle kingdom that didn't let foreigners in. In fact, there was a period when they reached out. The modern Chinese regimes are now using the legacy of Zhongha to push out the idea that China is a global power. So if you were setting out right now to hire one of the leaders, would you hire Leonard Bernstein? Coco Chanel or someone else in the book? It would depend <laughs> entirely on what job I had at hand. If it was leading an organization, I'd hire Dr. Martin Luther King. And why? Because we get blinded by the fact that he had such a righteous cause and he was killed tragically. In fact, he was a roll-up-your-sleeves, get-it-done leader who took this disparate group of the civil rights movement. He was never elected, never appointed, and yet he pulled it together and for 13 years led this thing holding fast to nonviolence against a lot of resistance, and he did it all before age 40. Hmm. Think about that. Now, there was one man in your book that surprised me that was included because nearly everyone, you know, they may have some characteristics that we might not want to emulate, but we can admire them. But you include Abu Musab al-Zarqawi. Why was he included, and what made him a leader? Well, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi was in the zealots. We paired him with Maximilian Robespierre, and he was a psychopath. But the thing about Zarkai that was so amazing in the two and a half years that I fought him directly. You took him out. We killed him. We did. And I don't grieve for him, but I do admire him in many ways. I respect him because he was completely committed to his cause. He was willing to do even horrific things because he believed his cause was so right. And because of that, the magnetism of this sort of white-hot flame of passion attracted people who didn't share his full commitment 
but cause them to follow him in doing things. I want to congratulate you on writing another excellent book, Leaders, Myth, and Reality. Stan, thanks again for joining us. Jim, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. The Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys and 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.